from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watts-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking about public education, and our guest is Derek W. Black, a professor of law at the University of South Carolina and author of a book called Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. Derek, in his book, makes the case that there's this much bigger history. And in some ways, the story of public education really parallels the story of democracy in the U.S. and that in times that democracy is constricted, so too is public education. And when democracy is more expansive, so too is support for public education. When I started reading this book, on the first page, Derek kind of, I can't remember exactly what he writes, but he says something like, we have a constitutional right to education. And I was like, no, we don't. Because <laughs> it's not in the constitution. But then I think one of the important points that he makes is that if we care about the intentions of the founders, then we not only use the constitution, but there are other documents that we use. We look at the Federalist Papers. We look at the Declaration of Independence. And he also brings up this North West ordinance Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that says we're going to get more states and they're going to be much farther away and there should be public education provided in these new states because if we're going to have a government that is run by the people, then the people need to know enough to be good citizens. So while it is not in the U.S. Constitution, I think it's, of course, worthy to note and notice that all 50 states have something to say about the right to education in their state constitution. This Northwest Ordinance was like the states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois. That's actually why Northwestern is called Northwestern. A lot of people don't know that. And now you do. But in any case, there is this clear argument that within the founders, certainly Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Benjamin Rush was a huge, all these people thought that education was absolutely essential to a democracy because it's not simply about how you best educate youngins in terms of reading, writing, arithmetic. It's what are the specific and essential burdens of education in a democracy? And his argument is that that idea, that is why there is public education. He argues that that is there before the beginning of the nation, and it still is an operative point of view, but it's gotten beat up over the years. And public education is also a place where, maybe this is not the right analogy, but in North Carolina, there's ABC stores. And the ABC stores are the liquor stores and they're state run. But what I always like about the ABC store is that the preacher has to go there. The president has to go there. The janitor has to go there. Everyone has to go there because that's just where you go. And there's no exception to that rule. Okay, so maybe that's not the best analogy. But my point about public education is that this is a space where everyone comes together Mm-hmm. where we can figure out values, where we can have our debates, where you might perhaps be able to even meet someone 
who has a different perspective in thinking about the documents that Danielle Allen shared with us a couple of weeks ago, right? That if we could produce a wider curriculum that incorporates our history and shared values, then maybe we could have actual civil, well, fully informed opinions in our democratic spaces, right? And bringing up Danielle Allen reminds me too that I think this conversation we're having sometimes gets wrapped up in this notion of we need better civics education. I didn't talk about it with Derek explicitly, but I think he would say that that's true. But his argument is also much bigger than that. It's the entire Mm -hmm. institution of public education. Yeah, Jenna, I think that's exactly right. I think what I hear from Derek and what I've read is, yeah, I mean, it would be delightful to have excellent civics education, but you can have excellent civics education no matter where you are. You could have it in public school and charter school and private school, but public schools present a place where we can all come as equals, as co-citizens, as community members And there we would situate that high quality civics education to produce excellent citizens. Yeah. In a public school, you are forced to reckon with the fact that there are people who are very different from you. They have different backgrounds. They have different faiths or lack thereof, and they want different things. They value different things. And so while it's one thing to talk about tolerance and arguments and assessment in a condition in which everyone agrees, it's another thing to talk about it in an environment that is inherently diverse. That is a good point to come back on in the wrap up of the show, but let's go now to the interview with Derek Black. Derek Black, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. I'll admit that I didn't realize until I read your book, Schoolhouse Burning, that there was such a thing as a constitutional right to education, both at the the state level and maybe in a perhaps a bit more roundabout way at the federal level. I think that might be a good place to start. I'm not sure listeners maybe understand some of that either. So can you kind of walk us through what exactly is outlined both at the state level and then also the national constitution? Yeah, I mean, we've got a little bit of a slow start in terms of a constitutional right to education at the very beginning of the nation. You know, we have the original colonies and they're they're just trying to build something out of nothing, so to speak, in a lot of places and still quite rural. So if you look at the original colonies, only a small percentage provided for education in their constitutions. But Congress was certainly pushing states in that direction. And there's a Northwest Ordinance, which I talk about in the book, that requires that all the Western states take a very aggressive approach to education. So what we see is after the founding is that our Western states do begin providing for public education in their constitutions. But we've got a problem in the East, so to speak. And of course, we have slavery problem, which is an even bigger one as well. But at the end of the Civil War, what Congress does really in the fulfillment of our founding ideas is that mandates that Southern states that want to reenter the Union have to provide for public education in their constitution. So at that point, we go from a nation where less than half 
of the nation states provide for public education in their constitutions to one where about 80% do. So it's a pretty radical shift there. And following the Civil War, no state would ever again enter the Union without guaranteeing public education in its state constitution. And then in a relatively short time, just a couple of decades, northern states began to amend their constitutions as well. So at this point, all 50 states provide for public education in their constitutions. Now, as you know, the federal constitution doesn't say anything about public education, but if you go back to founding, before we even had a constitution, we had the Northwest Ordinance that really lays out how the nation's going to grow, what states need to do, and mandates that every single community in the remaining territories reserve its central lot in every single town for public education. So that's sort of this key starting point. And when you sort of put that together with the Civil War period, you know, I make the argument in the book that there is this transformational moment where public education becomes part of what we call, quote, the guarantee of a Republican form of government, which is in our federal constitution. Mm -hmm. But things are tricky over time. We have Jim Crow, we have Brown versus Board. And so I think a lot of that has actually gotten muddled over the last century, century and a half. But I think it's actually pretty clear if you look at the first 100 years of the country. You also make the point or kind of draw this distinction that the ideal of public education is in some ways intertwined with the ideal of democracy itself, that it's, we have this vision for what it is, but we perhaps, we haven't quite gotten there yet. Can you just say more about what that ideal is and how public education is envisioned in the greater picture of American democracy? Yeah, well, American democracy has been a contradiction, obviously, since its founding and, and still has its contradictions today. And public education has always been part of that. At the nation's founding, what we're really talking about is taking a country that had been ruled by kings, queens, and military generals, in, in effect, and hand it over to the regular people, right? That, that This is what Jefferson and Adams are talking about. And, and this is a, a radical, scary idea. We're going to let regular folks run this country. And the sense was, and you see this throughout those early democratic theorizing documents, is that the voters have to be educated. So the reason why the Northwest Ordinance, for instance, says that you have to have a center lot reserved in every town for education is because that's the only thing that's going to make self-government work in this country. That's the only check on abuse. And what the founders really believed, and, and you see this throughout their writing, is that voters have to find the common good. Right, that you don't just vote to benefit yourself or to take things away from another person or penalize one group or another, that you find that common ground. And common ground, common good, is not something that's easily found. It's in some respects against human nature, you, you might argue, and that public education is that sort of value-reinforcing aspect of the country that help us get there. So the contradiction, of course, is that we didn't have public schools for everyone. Not everyone got to vote. Of course, when we said the common person, what we really meant was white men with land. That was, the, so to speak, common man at, at the founding. But the story that I tell in the book is really how the story of public education and the expansion of the right to vote unfold together, right? And you look at the end of the Civil War, we're talking about bringing millions of former slaves into self-government. And to be clear, a lot of poor whites as well in the South. And again, the idea is, look, if, if these folks are going to become part of the populace, we owe it to ourselves and to them to ensure public education. 
And we move past the Civil War. What I say is you consistently see democracy expanding or contracting in relationship to public education. So it's no surprise that during the late 1800s, early 1900s, when Jim Crow segregation takes over, they don't want to just disenfranchise African-Americans at the ballot box. They want to deny them a full education. They want to give them as little education as possible. And it's no surprise that when the NAACP LDF wants to revive the idea of full citizenship for African-Americans in the 20th century, they actually don't start with an attack at the ballot box, they start with an attack at the schoolhouse. And all of their sort of legal arguments, at least in the earliest years, are wrapped around the role of public education and democracy. And then finally, today, unfortunately, I say if you understand that history, you have to be really, really worried about the contraction of public education or the attack on public education today. Because If education has always been a means to expand or contract democracy, then it seems to me the contraction of public education today aligns with the contraction of democracy itself. Yeah, I mean, given that there's, as you've said here, and also say in more detail in the the book, education was used as a way to advance segregationist or white supremacist ideology. And a lot of that was settled with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act that we've certainly seen that kind of be pulled back as well. But I guess when there's no longer public education to use as a way to achieve those ends, was it inevitable that eventually that same power structure, that those same anti-democratic forces would eventually turn on public education itself? I don't know that it was. I mean, I I don't know that I would have predicted this current moment we're in today. And and I say that because if you look from Civil War through the 60s and 70s, what you see is that public education trying to navigate racial lines or sort of say race being brought to education, sort of this racist superstructure outside of education using public education as this way to manipulate democracy. The silver lining that I that I say is that public education survived. It survived time and time again. In fact, even when there were some in Mississippi that said, we should just do away with public education altogether, it, it survived. What strikes me different about today is that the racial lines are not so clear. And that's I mean, the attack is on public education itself. And so now I, would, I guess what I'm saying is it's not white supremacy against people of color. I think it is a handful of elites and ideological forces against the people. So it is now the people of all race, colors, and creeds against a narrow ideological position. Yeah, of course. And you're not to mention 40 years of neoliberalism and and market-based thinking and that, of course, the private sector can provide a better alternative than whatever the public sector can. I think, was it Betsy DeVos that coined the term government schools and started using that as a pejorative? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so there is, and you're really hitting the nail on the head here, there is this they found the language, they found the pressure points in public education that allows the, you might call the anti-taxers and the anti-government and the market proponents and the religious sort of right and the libertari- general libertarians all come around against the, around this idea that public education is the problem. And that's a very complicated 
sorting all those out. One of the things that I try to do to synthesize and, and, and bring poignancy to that debate is to say, you know, look, this isn't a question of whether the market can do good things or bad things or taxes and other, or, or other things. The question here is our fundamental democratic principles, right? If you just think about public education as being a service like anything else, then I guess we can have a conversation about private schools. We have a conversation about the market. But if what you say is that public education is a central pillar of our democracy, then I think we have to be very worried about the value-based choice that's going on here, regardless of any empirical arguments. I mean, I reject a lot of those empirical arguments as well, but I think we sometimes get distracted that really these empirical arguments are just a masquerade for Mm -hmm. a different set of values. Mm -hmm. And so for people who hold that different set of values. How do those ideas and those values compete in, for lack of a better term, this this marketplace of ideas? How do or how should public school advocates get that message out there amid all these other forces we've just been talking about? The good news here is that the Public Education Coalition has always been dominant and forceful and nonpartisan. That, in fact, until the 2020 election, there had never been anyone who had represented a major political party for president who wasn't pro-public education. You just couldn't be, right? Again, as a sort of testament to how central it is to our values, that you, you know, you're dead in the water if you're not pro-public education. So that is important in just sort of understanding how core this value is to all voters. And there's plenty of public polling out there that shows whether you're D or R, right? Enormous, I'm talking about 70, 80% support for public schools. What has happened is that the wealthy elite or some of the religious right have turned themselves into the victims or framed themselves as the victims. They've framed the public school as the oppressor. So I do think there is potentially uh, a showdown at the OK Corral, so to speak, coming which is the other side keeps pushing and pushing, they may not like the end result. Because I think we, the people, the greater good, generally disagree with where they're coming from on these issues. Mm -hmm. And I want to come back to some of that, but you you mentioning vouchers and charter schools there. It's been interesting to see that kind of evolve. I thought about it as I was reading your book as a way to kind of maybe split the difference between some of these arguments that have been happening. But Can you give us the history of of how those things came to be and kind of what the aims were initially and maybe how they've evolved since then? The theory around voucher schools were sort of anti-government, right? Uh, Milton Friedman sort of had espoused that notion, but it didn't, no one sort of paid any attention. It didn't make much sense. Public schools held the dominant position. People liked them. But what happened following Brown versus Board of Education was there was a wedge to exploit. And although there were no voucher programs prior to that, they became a vehicle whereby the state of Virginia decided it could close down the public schools to avoid desegregation and just give out vouchers and keep the schools segregated. So there is clearly an inception in history here that's around keeping schools segregated. Ultimately, public education won that battle. Right, Those voucher programs went away. They were struck down. The public really didn't want to close down all public schools. And I sort of tell the story of white suburban women in Richmond, Virginia, saying if our choice is between no public education and desegregated public education, we will grin and bear it and we'll we'll take desegregated education. So 
public education survives. Now, what has happened is that the vouchers have come back since the Great Recession in particular under sort of two guises. One, the narrative of failing public schools and children of color, ironically, need an exit. So that was a sort of first argument. But as soon as they got their camel's nose under the tent, so to speak, states like Florida, Indiana, et cetera, began eliminating income caps and, and those sorts of things on those vouchers so that now they're open to everyone or, or mostly everyone. So it's not about disadvantaged children. And the other problem with those voucher programs is they don't have anti-discrimination provisions. They don't have, well, they don't have all of the stuff that protects kids and represents public values in our public schools. The state strips those away from vouchers and just gives a blank check. So this is highly problematic for English language learners. It's highly problematic for students with disability, highly problematic for LGBTQ youth. Also, even though some of them do prohibit discrimination in the admission process, that doesn't mean that the environment is racially inviting. So we've got a history that started in a, a really bad place following desegregation with vouchers and really no attempt at all by public officials to clean this up now. And it's not being cleaned up primarily because I think a lot of rhetoric about freedom, right? Religious freedom, individual freedom that, well, we ought to just be free to go wherever we want to. That's true. Should the public pay for that though? And that's an entirely different question. So that's the voucher side of things. Charters have a, have a much, uh, I think, sort of more, more modest origin. The idea there was, I think, to create some really for teachers to be able to experiment and provide best practices and then sort of filter that stuff back into the public schools. It was never meant as an, it was not originally understood to be an alternative competing sector, but rather an experiment. At this point in time, it, it is a competing sector. And I wouldn't even say that it's a big experiment. I mean, to be clear, there's a lot of great charter schools out there. Some of them are diverse by design. Some of them provide a lot of extra resources to students who need it. But I'm, I'm using the word some, right? You know, you, you read New York Times a couple of weeks ago, well, regularly in the New York Times and in the journal, you read this stuff about their amazing results. Well, they're talking about some of them, right? That 20 to 30% of charter schools outperform their local counterparts in the public schools. The other 70% do either worse or no better. So, Creating an alternative universe to compete with our public schools when only one out of four of them are doing better is highly problematic, particularly when we look at that other 70% and you see all of the, there's no other word for it, the graft and corruption and self-dealing and profit-taking that, that has occurred in charter schools. So I would say charter schools are an empty vessel. We could maybe regulate them into a place where they could be productive but I kind of feel like we've let them go and grow and move in such a problematic direction that it's sort of hard to unwind that. Hey, everyone. We are taking a quick break from the interview with Derek Black to tell you about another show in the Democracy Group Podcast Network. This week, we are highlighting How Do We Fix It? The show is hosted by longtime reporters Richard Davies and Jim Miggs and takes a solutions journalism approach to some of the biggest issues in politics and policy. Each week, Richard and Jim speak with people who are searching for ways to make the world a better place or at least question the status quo in a thoughtful, nuanced way. Previous guests include astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson and former ACLU director Nadine Strassen. 
You can find How Do We Fix It wherever you get your podcasts or on the Democracy Group website at democracygroup.org. And now back to my conversation with Derek Black. The other thing that we've seen, too, is, as part of this general trajectory is what I believe Time magazine called at one point the war on teachers. And I think that's certainly top of mind right now as I think about some of the ongoing debates about reopening schools or not. I see articles and things framing it as well. The teachers unions are just holding this really strict line and putting their foot down in ways that they maybe shouldn't be. How do you think about some of what we're seeing now with teachers and and reopening during the pandemic as part of this greater war on teachers, so to speak? This specific issue has been the most difficult for me to navigate, and it's because most people don't understand the context here. You know, the context is nothing short of a war on teachers or a decade which involved stagnant or falling salaries, higher classrooms, an attack on tenure, and the removal of tenure in some places, the limitation on teacher bargaining, and then also standardized tests used to evaluate the hiring, retention, and tenuring of teachers. And so we've saw the number of people enrolling to become teachers cut in half during the recession. And what does that have to do with the pandemic? It has to do with a profession that feels disrespected, that feels pushed to the very edge before we even had a pandemic, and that has zero trust in public officials. So you you look at these debates between governors and teachers' unions. Are there places where I think if I had an omnipotent view of what's really going on in the world that the unions are being too reluctant or, or whatnot in some instances? Yeah, I would say so. At the same time, if I was one of them, would I act any differently? No, I would not, right? It's sort of like as we try to remember in our own marriages or relationships, like mm-hmm. reality doesn't really matter quite often. It's the relationship that, that dictates the terms of engagement. And as a group that's been abused, they have every reason to be skeptical of what's going on. And so I sort of say, look, this is a hole that we dug for ourselves as a culture. If we had supported our teachers as a profession, paid them fair salaries, had fair-sized classrooms and facilities up to date, this would be a whole different discussion than the one we're seeing here. So, yeah, I mean, like anyone else, I want our kids to be back as and – and actually, they're pretty much – Enormous droves are coming back on March the 8th. Today was a really huge day across the nation. But I, I just never – I should say – and maybe you know, I'm wandering around here a bit – But on this question, it's sort of like you don't go next door and tell your neighbors how to manage their marriage. And that's kind of the issue here. It's like now our children are beneficiaries of of this relationship across the street. But state leadership and federal regulate, all it's like it's ruined the relationship so much that I've just kind of felt like I've had to be very careful, right? It's just a very sensitive situation. And our teachers, no one talks about like, because we've mistreated teachers so much and there's so much turnover in the early years, our teaching force loses the young folks. So it's not like a bunch of 25, 35 year old teachers who don't want to come to school. We're talking about a lot, primarily women, right? A lot of them in their fifties and sixties who may also be caretaking for their own mothers and fathers who have a much different set of health concerns than the rest of the workforce, which is actually more diverse. The rest of our workforce is more diverse than our teaching workforce. Mm -hmm. 
And it's easy to forget that as late as 2018, maybe even into 2019, but we saw teachers across the country protesting. We saw this big kind of movement. It sort of maybe felt like we were starting to, to turn the corner on some of this stuff. But then, of course, it seems like the pandemic has taken things back to where they were before those protests, if not even farther back than that. Yeah, I don't know what the baseline is today, but I can tell you that before the recession starts, I thought that public education was in a tremendous place because a lot of the data showed families supporting teachers and benefits and changes and things for them at a higher rate than teachers themselves asked for. Right, So there was this question on, I think PDK does a, a survey every year, this question about would you support teachers going on strike under X condition, you know, something about benefits or whatever it was. And actually, parents supported teachers going on strike at a higher rate than the teachers themselves did. I, I found that fascinating. And I think that shows you, going back to my sort of point about the educate, public education coalition, how strong it is and how much it really does support its schools and its teachers, I do think, I've, I've got to think that those numbers have softened since the recession. And it's going to be interesting, if not scary, to see where we're at when this whole thing is over, whether we just go back to normal or, or no. Yeah. So uh, last question here for you, Derek. We mentioned at the beginning that we as a country have never been in a place where we've had to really advocate or fight for public education, but it seems that we are in that place now. And we do have some models of success in place with other democratic restrictions like ending gerrymandering or pushing for voting rights for formerly incarcerated people and all of these these sorts of things. What opportunities are there to form those coalitions, do you think, around issues in public education? And what is the best way to get started? Does it come from the PTA? Does it come from the, the school board? Where does it all start, do you think? Yeah, I mean, there, there's an organizational challenge, but I will tell you that I think the lines are, are pretty clear here. So when we look at what I call sort of the assault on, on public education, and you go, well, Derek, if public education is so bipartisan, everyone loves it so much, why do we have so many charters and vouchers? The answer to that is that we have public officials who do not represent the people. And well, why is that? Well, because they're being controlled by a narrow ideological group and lobbyists. You say, why is that? Well, in part because we have historically been able to take public education for granted, that it didn't matter whether you voted D or R. It didn't matter whether you were a rural district or an urban district, right? The person you elected was going to be pro-public education. So when you cast your vote, you know, you're voting on guns or you're voting on abortion or you're voting on something, but it's not clearly public education. Those days have passed. So step number one is to understand that when you go to the ballot box, you're casting a vote for or against public education and who you vote for. And to also understand that regardless of your demographic or geographic differences, there's a lot of people who feel the exact same way that you do. And so one of the things I've been espousing a lot right now is that if you're pro-public education and you're in the suburbs or you're in an urban environment, which, which is where vouchers are really going to have the biggest effect on public education. You've got a lot of friends in rural communities, and you need to understand they're your friend, and you need to reach out to them. They may be from a different political party than you, but Texas in 2016, I think, is a perfect example. When they were rushing this voucher bill through the legislature, it had passed by an overwhelming amount in the Senate by like 
65, 70%. And then it got to the house and someone alerted those small rural white districts in Texas, who, as I say, hadn't seen a brick laid or a new bus bought in decades. And they said, what in the world is the Texas Senate doing spending tens of hundreds of millions of dollars on vouchers when they haven't laid a new brick in my district in decades? And the answer is they're trying to undermine public education. Don't be distracted and say vouchers don't matter to me or charters don't matter to me. If you're pro-public education, you've got friends in every district in your state, regardless of whether that state has predominantly Republican or Democratic voters, and they need to be activated. They need to be activated to let their their Republican or Democratic representatives understand that, you know what, I'm not for that. I am not for that. Well, Derek, we will leave it there. There's so much history in your book that we didn't even get to cover today. I hope listeners will pick it up and check it out and learn more. But uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been great. Candace, I wanted to start by framing the alternative argument, which is, to say the least, powerful, if not dominant in our uh, society right now, and try to just kind of account for how these folks think that democracy and public schools can be decoupled. The idea is, well, first of all, the government is just wholly inefficient, that it redistributes resources in a way that is wholly illegitimate. And there is some necessity for it, right? You need the government to fight your wars and and maybe police your borders. But other than that, government is just more of a problem than a solution and a far better mechanism for making things go for making things operate well is the free enterprise system, right? That everyone is the best judge of their own self-interest. So let them make their choice and give them the freedom and options of these choices. And they will pick what is in their children's best interest. And everybody's going to be great as a result. And so the problem with public schools is that it is run by the government. It's a monopoly. There is no competition there, and it is going to lead to not just inefficiencies, but it's not going to achieve the ends that we have given for it. I think what neoliberalism is, is kind of organizing principle that we should just be hands off. But what we actually see is that the government is being used, it's wielding its power and resources to bolster the market. So even, for example, let's not have public education, let's have vouchers. Well, that is still a way for the government to bolster private entities that are not necessarily beholden to having equal access that don't necessarily have to have principles of anti-discrimination. They don't have to care about children with disabilities or learning differences, LGBTQ rights, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one part. One part is we never really have free markets. But Mm -hmm. another component, and, and I'll just kind of hand it back to you, is that education is not a commodity. Everything is not a commodity. And so if we come to the table to say that education is not just about individuals getting something, but instead that we have some sort of 
community-based thing, something that we approach together, right? I think the second one you articulated is basically at the core of most of the arguments we have in our society right now. Margaret Thatcher, basically the equivalent of Reagan in Great Britain during the early 80s, said there is no such thing as society. Society. Mm -hmm. And so that is their argument, that society is simply the byproduct of individuals maximizing value. There is no we. There is no such thing as we. And there's nothing that I owe you or nothing that I owe the collective beyond just me pursuing my own self-interest within the confines of the law. And that is a very, very strong ideology, right? And it's very straightforward. There are plenty of people who find it compelling and that explains things. And so you are left with this argument about public school or about aid to the poor or whatever you want to talk about, that the very premise of your argument is rejected, right? And so I guess that means that people like Derek Black have a very difficult task in front of them. Well, ideology is not an exercise in consistency, right? That any kind of strict ideology is always going to break. And so neoliberalism bends where it needs to bend. So for example, I can imagine that these folks are okay with the roads and the highways that the government ensures that they run smoothly and that there are enough of them for them to deliver their goods. They want all sorts of things that we share as community members and we put in in order to get out. Maybe some of the things we get out are things that are especially helpful for us, but we could put schools in that same category. So when Derek ended his book, it was just when COVID was starting. And there seemed to be this kind of, he was hopeful that there had been this sign of a kind of popular support for teachers and for their efforts. And I do think that Derek's argument often comes down to we're not investing enough in public schools. And I think that's probably true. I also think that in the COVID environment, there has been a backlash against a lot of the demands coming from teachers unions. This raises the issue of just a public union insofar as the whole impetus for union was that there needed to be some countervailing power to capital, to the ownership of the factory or what have you. And in this case, the owner is the public. I think that this COVID moment is really fascinating to think about teachers unions and what's going on here. And teachers, I'm going to say, know stuff that we just don't know about the everyday business of running a school and teaching children. So, and I think about, for example, my son is in second grade. He has basically gone to school almost every day this school year. But one, the taxes that go to my school from our house is enormous. It's like right there on the on the tax bill. And I can see how that money works on a day-to-day basis. In addition to that, 
I think you think about the human capital that a place like State College has. So in COVID, I have to take my son to school every day and I have to pick him up instead of him using the bus. If he forgets his mask, which he never does, he has to have like 17 masks. If he forgets them, there are handmade ones there for their little faces that somebody sewed with their own two hands and machine. That when they play tag at gym, they have pool noodles. Who bought those pool noodles? I guess my point here is that a lot of the debate around, well, is public school and public teachers even doing their part? Well, a lot of the resources that they do or don't have are policy decisions. And a lot of those policy decisions speak to what our priorities are. Yeah, I think that's a well said and a good summary. I think a lot of parents are less Well, I mean, sure, there's some who just think that public school is indoctrination and it's undermining the values they wish to to present to their children. But I think for most parents, they're less interested in the democracy part of it and more interested in the idea that they're going to get a good education. One of the things that I took away from Derek is that we have actually maybe... I don't know if this is the right word, myopic set of metrics about success and what it is that we're trying to get out of public schools. And so if our metrics of success are about standardized testing, then the way that we evaluate whether a school is good or not has to do with these standardized tests, which may be fine, right? You want to know if you're first grader can add, you want to know if your fourth grader can do geometry, whatever, that they can read at a certain level, certainly. But there are some things that we haven't incorporated in that metric, and that is critical thinking. That is appreciation of different perspectives. Those things are evaluating an argument, which these are the things that are required when someone goes into the voting booth or someone's trying to figure out, should we vote for this initiative or that referenda? I think that we need to stew a little bit more around what is it that we value? What is it that we're trying to get out of education, generally speaking? Yeah, I think that's right. And it is part of a broader conversation about the condition and affirmation, I guess, of our democracy, right? That if we want to be a democracy, there are certain things that go along with that, both on a personal level, but also on a social and institutional level. And Derek Black's book is, look, you cannot not make public education part of that set of prerequisites. If you are going to sustain a democracy, public school has to be part of that. And his argument is that that has been known or that argument has been presented from before the nation was even a nation. And so it's a really timely, but also, I mean, I guess what I would say is it's manifestation of a very, very broad argument going on in our society right now. Is democracy worth it? And what does that mean? 
Thank you, Jenna, as always, for a great interview, and uh, to Derek for coming on and presenting this book that, you know, we don't normally talk about education, but clearly that's a mistake on our part because there's a clear point of connection. Here. So for Democracy Works, I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.